Almost. Wow. Never. <laughs> I'm gonna keep that. Oh, that came unplugged. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's what I'm here for. I'm special with this. My Google Home. Your mini or your actual home? The, the, the hub. Yeah. It um, it did some really weird shit the other day. Is your house haunted? Huh? Is your house haunted? I don't know. But um, I think nobody asked it a question. Uh-huh. It just said something really weird and was like, I can't help you with that. Or something like that. Oh. And then, um, my dad responded. He was like, what the fuck? And then, it, the Google, it said, in a male voice. Oh, I don't remember what it said, but it was like, um, I can't process that request right now. Or something really weird. We're just, uh, yeah. not even normal. And... My dad was like, stop, Google, stop. And it was like, I'm sorry. It was just so weird. Like, it was the only time that I've actually Google heard Google, like, have an emotion. Yeah. It sounded, it was like, I'm sorry. No, like, poor Google. I was like, Google, are you okay? Talk to me. It's trying its hardest, Grace. I, I mean... It was really creepy. Google is a little over-eager sometimes. Yes, I'm talking to you, Google. Because sometimes it will hear you saying something, and it thinks you say, okay, Google, or... <laughs> like that. It, it thinks you say it. Okay. But... It changed from I know. a female voice to a male voice. Well, mine is a male. Yeah, but you have to set it up that way. I don't know then. Someone's messing with your apps. Setting that. Google, I mean, you're hacked. No, it's just creepy. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> That's Rachel. That's Grace. We are Myths and Misfortunes. Welcome to our podcast. Yes, we cover the true crime. We cover the paranormal. And it's all over the world. But we typically base them on one place at a time. Sometimes just outside that place. It's a little hard, guys. Sometimes an hour away. Sometimes the next county. <laughs> Sometimes... I almost went, like, four hours away with our Mexico episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, we both thought that it was going to be a different one, and then 
Yeah. It was the other, the other one. Yeah. So. Yeah. That was a fun episode. Yes. All right. So, where... Actually, really, where are we? <laughs> where are we today? <laughs> today, we are in Phoenix, Arizona. History. History. My sources are... I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I didn't even bold it on this one. It's just... Um, NPS.gov, encyclopedia.com, and wikipedia.org. Alright, good old Wikipedia. I'm so excited to learn about the history of Phoenix, Arizona. Hopefully, it will be somewhat short. Hopefully. The Hohokam... Hohokam? Hohokam. Oh, Hokam. Hohokam. Hohokam. I like that. I hope I'm saying this correctly. I just looked it up and then rechecked to make sure I was saying that correctly. The Hohokam were the original settlers of southern Arizona. They were in the area from about 1 AD through about 1450 AD, barely 90 years before Spanish Spanish explorers arrived in the southwest. The Hohokam are probably most famous for their creation of extensive irrigation canals along the Salt and Gila Rivers. Yes, thank you. In fact, the Hohokam had the largest and most complex irrigation systems of any culture in the New World north of Peru. Not even the complex societies in Mesoamerica had such extensive irrigation canals. Along with the canals, there were extensive villages that covered hundreds of acres and were occupied by several hundred people. The Hohokam disappeared... Hohokam people, people disappeared from the area for reasons unknown, although uh, historians speculate that they left due to a drought. Would make sense. Yes. Yes, Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> the name Hohokam actually means those who have gone in the language of the Adam. 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 If I said that as cor- incorrectly as well, please let me know. I did Google that as well. I'm also hearing autumn. 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 Ah, autumn. Ah, ah, dumb. Dumb. The name Hohokam actually means those who have gone in the language of the Oodam, the contemporary Native American inhabitants of the sub- of the southern <laughs> Of of southern Arizona. Alright, skipping forward a little bit. In the Gadsden Purchase of 1853, the U.S. promised to honor all land rights of the area, including those of the Autumn. They gained full constitutional rights. However, the demand for land settlement escalated with the development of mining and the Transcontinental Railroad. Lovely. Yes. That demand resulted in the loss of autumn land on both sides of the border. Skipping even further ahead. Yes. 
The history of the city itself begins with Jack Swilling, a Confederate veteran who, in November of 1867, on a visit to Fort McDowell, was the first to appreciate the agricultural potential of the Salt River Valley. Of the white people, anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, he promoted the first irrigation system, which was inspired by the ruins of the Hoacom Canals. He raised funds from local gold miners in Wickenburg and formed the Swelling Irrigating and Canal Company, whose intent was to build irrigation canals and develop the Salt River Valley for farming. The first post office was established on June 15, 1868, uh, located in Swelling's homestead with Swelling serving as the postmaster. <laughs> He does it all, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, he's a, he's a real renaissance man. Yeah, he was also a Confederate soldier, so. Yeah, well, yeah. Anyway, by 1875, the town had a telegraph office, 16 saloons, and four dance halls. 1878 saw the opening of the first bank, a branch of the Brink of Brink. Brink. My brain is brinking. <laughs> a branch of the Bank of Arizona, and by 1880, Phoenix's population stood at 2,453. Wow. The city of Phoenix was established in 1881. On February 14, 1912, under President William Howard Taft, Phoenix became the capital of the newly formed state of Arizona. Oh, in 1940, as the Depression ended, Phoenix had a population of 65,000, which, um, with, like, 121,000 121, more in the rest of Mariopa County. Maricopa County. Mariopa. Fucking shit, dude. Its economy was still based on cotton, citrus, and cattle, while it also provided retail, wholesale, banking, and governmental services for the centr for central Arizona. People want to say the. <laughs> for the central. <laughs> <laughs> and was gaining a national reputation among winter tourists. Oh, nice. Yes. The population grew after the Second World War due to the arrival of young veterans who had seen its uh, new industries and job opportunities. Okay. The new 20-story City Hall opened in 1992. 20-story? 20, 20 stories. 2-0. Yes. The development of the Sunny Slope area with low-cost housing is noticed by local refugee re resettlement centers, which promote the area among refugee communities. During the 1990s, refugees from Afghanistan, Bosnia, Sudan, Somalia, Congo, Sierra Leone, <laughs> Laos, Vietnam, and Central and South America would settle there. 43 different languages were spoken in schools by the year 2000. That is awesome. 1993 saw the creation of Tent City by Sheriff Joe Arpaio using inmate labor to alleviate the overcrowding in the Maricopa County Jail System, the fourth largest in the world. The famous... Oh, oh yes. The famous Phoenix Lights UFO sightings took place mm. in March 1997. Ooh. We may come back and do that one day. I hope so. I almost, I really almost did it, but then I found something else. And I'm, but now I'm curious what you did if you didn't do the UFOs. 
You'll see. <sighs> okay. Okay. Um, in the mid-2000s, the baseline killer and serial shooter crime sprees occurred in Phoenix, Tempe, and Mesa. Mesa? Mesa. 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 2008 was an eventful year in the Valley of the Sun. First, the Phoenix Light Rail began operation with service between Phoenix, Tempe, and Mesa. Squaw Peak, the second tallest mountain in the city, was officially named Piestoa Peak after Army Specialist Lori Ann Piestoa, an Arizona native who was the first Native American woman to die in combat with the U.S. military and the first American female casualty in the 2003 Iraq War. Yes. In June 2017, a heat wave grounded more than 40 airline flights of small aircraft, with American Airlines reducing sales on certain flights to prevent the vehicles from being over the maximum weight permitted for safe takeoff. Oh. Yes. It gets fucking hot there. Well, yeah. Phoenix today covers about 520 square miles and has a diverse population of 1.5 million and is currently the country's fifth largest city. Some must-visit places for Phoenix, according to my research, include the Orpheum Theater, which a lot of people know about, um, which which opened in 1928 and I've heard it's haunted. Probably. So, cool. Uh, there's also the Desert Botanical Garden. And oh. I know. Sorry. I really I like want to go to a botanical gardens. garden so bad. There's that one um, that just opened downtown, right? The Oh, the one on the waterfront? Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Oh. I don't know. We'll see. We uh, might have to go and check it out. There's the Herd Museum. Uh, the exhibits tell the stories of Native people of the Southwest from early history to powerful memorize. M- memorize. <laughs> memorize. The exhibits tell the stories of the native people of the Southwest. There is also Heritage Square Dining, where they have got foods and shit. And then Old Town Scottsdale, which has restaurants, art galleries, and horse cart rides. Ooh, which is horse cute. Rides. There's also um, Frank Lloyd Wright's. Uh, Winter home, or summer home, winter home, which was also a school. Yeah, Arizona, yeah. Yeah. And that was Phoenix, Arizona. Woo! Yes. My story this week is about the Lizzie Borden of Phoenix. (gasps) What? Yeah. Is this our our actual first female killer? Nope, I did the first female killer in the last one. I didn't even register it. Well, yeah. (laughs) I didn't count. I didn't want that to count. (laughs) That doesn't count. This is our first female killer. Yes. Um, She is also often called the trunk murderess. Ooh. So, my sources are Murderpedia, Wikipedia, and medium.com. Winnie Ruth Judd was born on January 29th, 1905 to Reverend H.J. McKinnell and his wife Carrie in Indiana. I leave it at just Indiana because one source said Oxford and one said Darlington. Huh. She was raised in a free Methodist household where going to every Pentecostal worship service was routine. Hmm. 
As a child, she wanted nothing more than to have a baby. At seven years old, she went to school telling her friends that her mother was pregnant. Oh. Not going to lie, at probably four or five, I was telling people that I wanted a baby brother, but... Noah still asks for a baby brother or sister. Yeah. I mean, when you're an only child, you'd... But yeah. she, she wasn't an only child, so... Mel's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah. However, when neighbors came to congratulate Mrs. McKinnell, they were told there was no baby. Ooh. As a teenager, she accused her then-boyfriend of getting her pregnant, although she had never had sex. What? With him or with anyone. Okay. Upon a visit to the doctor, she was told that she was not pregnant. Still, she insisted that she was. Eventually, she ran away from home, and when she returned, childless, she told everyone that she was kidnapped and had given birth. Mm-hmm. This was also found to not be true. She was known to most people as Ruth, and would later be described as a slender, blonde, young woman, just under five feet tall. I thought you were going to say, crazy Ruth. <laughs> Just described as crazy roof. I'll let you be the judge. At 17 years old, she went to work at Indiana State Hospital as an attendant. She apparently did so well there that they wanted her to take on more responsibility. Ruth then met Dr. William C. Judd, who was a World War II veteran and 26 years her senior. Mm. Like, this guy is old enough to be her dad. Yeah. So... They got married in 1924 and took a honeymoon to New Orleans before moving together to Mexico so that he could be a doctor to a large mining company. Hmm. Due to his wartime injuries, William was supposedly a morphine addict. Cool, 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 cool. That's great for a doctor. Mm-hmm. This forced the couple to be constantly on the move and live on, for lack of a better description, an uncertain income. Hmm. There was no telling where their money was coming from since they were constantly on the move, and with his addiction, I'm sure that whatever money came into their possession was very quickly gone. I mean, he was a doctor, so he probably could have just stolen the medicine. Yeah. But again, if he gets caught stealing, he doesn't keep his job, so... True. He was probably stealing other stuff and selling that so that he could make money. Yeah, true. Their marriage was apparently even more strained when... Ruth began demanding to have a child. Mm. Due to his addiction and inability to keep a job, Dr. Judd was unwilling to have a child. Yeah. He insisted on birth control, no matter how much she begged. However, she soon quit said birth control without telling him and got pregnant. Cool. This only proved to Dr. Judd of his wife's immaturity and her ability to manipulate Mm. in order to get what she wanted. He decided that she was not emotionally or physically able to have a child and performed an abortion on her. What the fuck? Yeah, obviously this was a non-consensual abortion, too, so... Right. Even worse, she fell into a deep, deep depression, and when she got pregnant a second time, she ran away from her husband in order to try and keep the baby. Good. However, she miscarried. Oh. She went back home to her husband as depressed as she was before. By 1930, the couple were living almost completely separate from each other, but they kept in constant contact. Ruth moved to Phoenix, Arizona to work as a governess for the Lee Ford family. Mm. During this time, she met their neighbor, John J. Happy Jack. Happy Jack. Happy Jack. 
Holleran. He was a 44-year-old businessman who was very active in the city politically and socially. Although he was married, he was known to be a playboy and philanderer. Oh, of course. His <laughs> of name course. is Happy Jack. Happy Jack, yes. He's happy. Ruth and this Holleran guy soon became friends and eventually began their extramarital affairs. As it, as it goes. It's been said that the two would sit on the front porch and talk about their lives. And that's when the budding romance began. After a few months, Ruth got a better-paying job as a medical secretary at the Grenoble Medical Clinic, where she met Agnes and Leroy, who was an x-ray technician and liked to go by the name Anne. No one here likes their first name. Hmm. She, in turn, met Anne's roommate, Hedvig Samuelson, who was a teacher that went by the name of Sammy. Hedvig. I Hedvig. go by Sammy, yes. too. Apparently, doctors had diagnosed Sammy with tuberculosis while she and Anne had lived in Alaska. The two moved to Phoenix, hoping that the dry Arizona climate would ease some of her symptoms. Fun story, these two also knew Holleran, the famous playboy philanderer, whatever. (laughs) Philanderer. Uh, The three three women likely bonded over the fact that they were working women, when during the time, most were not. Mm -hmm. For a short period, Ruth moved in with the two women, but due to differences... Ruth soon moved to her own apartment. Hmm. When I say differences, they were apparently constantly fighting. Oh, of course. One night in fall of 1931, Ruth introduced Holleran to a co-worker of hers named Lucy Moore. A hunting trip was planned with the three of them, and after Holleran and Ruth picked up Lucy for the trip, he wanted to stop at Anne and Sammy's. However, earlier that day, Ruth had lied to the two when they invited her over for a party by saying that she had too much work to do. She was too embarrassed to go in and see the girls, but Jack went inside and informed the ladies that Ruth was in the car. So, Sammy and Anne came out, and Ruth proceeded to introduce Lucy to them. Although nothing was said that night in front of Lucy, Anne and Sammy were apparently super jealous of this pretty new girl that had been introduced to him. Hmm. A lot of cattiness when it comes to this Playboy guy. Mm. Mm. On the night of October... He's married. Leave him alone. Jesus. He's married. She's married. These two women... uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. On the night of October 16th, 1931, Anne invited Ruth over to play bridge. One of the most common theories is that Ruth had already had plans to see Halloran that night. However, when he didn't show, she decided to pay a visit to her two friends anyway. As Anne and Sammy's other friend was just leaving for the night, Ruth finally arrived. The two asked Ruth how Halloran knew Lucy, and Ruth confessed that she had introduced them. This started all the drama. Mm, Great. They got into an argument and threatened to tell... Halloran, that Ruth had introduced him to a woman who had syphilis. Syphilis back then was equatable to AIDS in the... What year is that? 80s? In the 80s, yeah. Yeah, in the 80s. Like People were super afraid of it. You were going to die if you got it. Ruth informed them that they couldn't do that because it was confidential information and that if they told him... Oh, she actually did have syphilis? 
if if it was the case. Oh, okay. Yeah, if it was the case, they couldn't do that because it was confidential. Right, and they right. both worked for the medical, and you're not supposed Here to share I was that. I was like, oh, she, she really did? <laughs> unknown. Jesus. <laughs> Very unknown. Okay, hold on. Where am I? Syphilis. Yes, syphilis. Because it was confidential information... And that if they did that, she would retaliate by telling all the doctors at the clinic that Anne and Sammy were in a romantic relationship together. Oh, Jesus. Yes, which back then was not yeah. as acceptable <laughs> or at all acceptable, even though it definitely happened. <laughs> Jeez. Definitely happened. According to Ruth, she then went into the kitchen only to turn around and find Sammy standing there holding a gun at her. Oh. Shouting that Ruth better not tell anyone anything bad about Anne. Ruth struggled with Sammy in order to get the gun away from her, and while she was doing that, Anne came in and began hitting her with an ironing board. Oh, Jesus. And not gonna lie, when I first read this, I read it that she was hitting her with an iron. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting here thinking, oh God, Ruth is dead. She hit her with a cast iron iron. I don't yeah. know why my brain went cast iron iron, but it did. I'm like, oh god, she's dead. She's got blunt force trauma. No. Ironing board. So instead, she's just, you know, badly bruised. Interesting weapon choice. Gotta say. Yeah, really. Ruth grabbed the gun barrel and was shot in her hand. Oh, fuck. Then, when she could finally get a hold of the gun to pull it away from her... The gun went off and shot and killed Sammy. Fuck. As Anne was coming at her again, Ruth struggled to stand up and accidentally shot Anne too. Ooh. This is where I can get a little messy here. In a panic, Ruth said that she shoved both the bodies in the trunk. <gasps> she had the trunk delivered to her house the next day where she proceeded to dismember the body of Sammy oh in God. order to put her into different bags oh my god ruth said that she wanted to ship the body to the coast in order to get her little brother to help her dump the bodies on october 18th 1931 ruth appeared at phoenix's union station in order to catch the golden state limited passenger train her luggage stayed with her all night until the train pulled into los angeles's central station Honestly, I'm not sure how she could have stayed with it all night, though. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the smell oh, that had begun coming from the luggage had begun to attract attention. Oh. The baggage agent for the train told Ruth that her trunks would need to be held at the station, and when employees asked her to open the trunks so that they could inspect them, she quickly just kind of opened her purse and looked around to see if she could have if she could have the key and she claimed that her husband had the key mm. and then quickly ran off at this point her brother who had no prior knowledge of the crime had already picked her up and upon seeing the trunks he got a little bit suspicious yeah yes yeah he dropped her off in los angeles with like 5 bucks he was like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I'm in this. Good. I'm good. Yeah. I don't need this. <clears throat> During the time the L.A. police were called, 
and when they arrived, the police picked the locks of the trunks and found the bodies, bloodied clothes, and handwritten letters inside. Ruth was nowhere to be found until October 23rd when she surrendered to police at, of all places, the Alvarez and Moore Funeral Chapel. (laughs) She was covered in bruises and had a gunshot wound in her left hand. Oh. Which does give a little bit of validity to her story. Mm -hmm. (sighs) It would have been hard to cut up those bodies with a gunshot near your hand, though. Mm-hmm. On October 19th, 1931... Sorry, I'm backtracking a little bit. Yep. Phoenix police entered the bungalow where Anne and Sammy were living before all this. And appara- apparently neighbors and reporters had also been allowed onto the property. Of course. The landlord had placed an ad into two papers offering tours for two cents a person. Oh, you, you know, you gotta make money somehow. I just, I, I'm sorry, I just had to add that because it's Jesus. Just... <sighs> so, yeah. New, newspapers went crazy with the case of the blonde butcher, or as some referred to her, the trunk murderess. Yes. Ruth's trial began on January 19th, 1923, under the guidance of Judge Howard C. Speakman at the Maricopa County Courthouse. Ruth only faced trial for Anne Leroy's murder. The dismemberment of Sammy's body actually did not come up at all during her trial. They didn't even... Mm -mm. (sighs) The prosecution went into a long, dramatic story about how Ruth and Anne argued over the relationships that they had with Holloran. Mm. It is suggested that Ruth stabbed and then shot Sammy. After a brief confrontation. Mm-hmm. Ruth's defense team brought up the fact that the tours were being held in the crime scene, completely destroying and contaminating any evidence pertaining to the case. Yeah. They also pointed towards Holloran, claiming that he was involved, you know, with no real evidence. Right, right. He was actually indicted by the grand jury. While on trial, Ruth actually testified against him claiming that she had killed in self-defense and that Halloran had helped her clean up. Ooh. And there's actually a book literally called The Trunk Murderous, Winnie Ruth Judd. In this book, the... I do. That's what I was about to say. Oh. (laughs) The author, Jana Bombersbach, Mm. she, she touches like, a lot of ground on on the fact that Holloran was the one who dissected and oh. dismembered the body. That would make sense because of the, the gunshot wound in her hand. Yep. And the book is written with a lot of quotes. So she actually sat down and talked with um, Ruth about oh. all of this, apparently. And, okay, basically he dismembered the body for her. She was like, we have to go to the police. I have to tell them that it this, that I killed them. I have to do it because it's it's the right thing to do. It wasn't in self-defense. He's like, no, you're going to go to jail. You're going to be put to death. You can't tell anyone. He was like, I've got a plan. We're going to get you out of here. We're going to send you to 
Los Angeles, mm-hmm. you're going to have the perfect perfect excuse because your husband is living in Los Angeles and your brother is living in Los Angeles. So you're just going to go and you're going to visit them. But what's really going to happen is I'm going to have a guy there to meet you and he's going to take care of the bodies while you go and spend time with your brother and husband. Mm. Yeah. Apparently, this guy never showed up to take the bodies. Uh, so, that's where the plan all ex- kind of fell apart. Yeah. Yes. Okay, sorry. Back back on topic. <laughs> ultimately, because she didn't come out and say all this, ultimately, the judge determined that Holloran had committed no crime. Mm. All of that actually came up after the fact. Uh, Ruth's parents and husband stood beside her for the entire trial. Her mother even told the court that insanity ran in the family. Okay. Well, well, yeah. I mean, she was found guilty of first-degree murder on February 8th, 1933, and was was ordered to die by hanging. Yeah. She was sent to prison in Florence to await her execution, and only 48 hours before she was supposed to be executed, the warden overturned Ruth's death sentence by claiming that she seemed to be insane. <sighs> she was then sent to an insane, insane asylum, and there she became very popular. She befriended several guards, and at one point was even gifted a key to the front door of the asylum. Uh, oh. So, she escaped seven times. Well, yeah, you gave her the fucking key. That's not escaping. Yeah. That's taking a day trip. Yeah. That That's my point. If she had a key, is, is it Jeez. really escaping? That's not really escaping. <clears throat> it doesn't count. On her last escape in 1962, she made it all the way to Northern California. Damn. And established a new identity as Marion Lane. And she stayed there for seven years. And worked as a housekeeper and caregiver. She escaped for seven Seven years. years. Upon her eventual return to Arizona, Ruth hired a famous San Francisco criminal defense attorney and an Arizona criminal defense attorney to handle her case for parole. Her bid for parole was successful. She moved to Stockton, California and lived there until her death in 1998. And that is my story. Jesus. And I'm not sure how I feel on this topic because there's so much conflicting evidence. Yeah. And conflicting stories and literally no answers. And when they say the Lizzie Borden of Phoenix, literally the Lizzie Borden of Phoenix. That's like, she has the bruises. She has the gunshot wound. Obviously, she couldn't have done all of this alone. Right. Unless... Unless, unless she killed them, dismembered them, and then shot herself in the hand and had someone beat her up. So that's not, that's still not on her own. (laughs) Yeah. She could just go out and be like, fucking fight me. True. Very true. But But there was also, yeah, there was some strong evidence that the government at the time was trying to help good old Holleron because if he was part of it, obviously, you know, he's such a high-standing person in the community. Mm. You gotta protect them at all costs. 
That is. But yeah, okay, that's my story. I'm sorry. That just this one actually kind of makes kind of makes me angry because like I want I want to feel bad for her. But before I read the fact that she had a key, I'm like, why would you escape seven times? That's like admitting your guilt. But if she had a key, I don't know if it's escaping or not. I wouldn't say at that point that it's escaping. I mean, if you got the key, yeah. they're basically saying, oh, you can leave whenever you want. It's true. Yeah. And I wrote that she was gifted the key. But that could also mean, like, someone just kind of left it and she was like, oh... This is mine now. <laughs> seven times. I know. Seven times, and it took them seven years to find her the last time. <sighs> That's dissatisfying. Yeah. And see, this isn't even one of those unsolved. Like, I mean, she, she was convicted, and she was put on death row for it. Yeah, but did she do it alone? Was it actually an accident? Mm-hmm. Or, like... Yeah. Or did they plan it? Or did she plan it? Well, in there, I mean, there's some, there is some information that I did leave out. Like, apparently two mattresses were missing from the house that Anne and Sammy lived in. And in Ruth's story, Holloran, thank you, Da Vinci, Holloran picked up Sammy when he came to help clean up. Mm-hmm. And threw Sammy on the bed. Oh. And blood scattered all on the mattress and on the walls. So, of course, if there's blood, you gotta get rid of the mattress. Yeah. But she couldn't have done that. She could've. I mean, she could have, but with a gunshot in her hand. and It's hard enough moving a mattress. <laughs> Unless she did that part herself. Yes. But then also, there. Like, people, people wanted to hate her because yeah. they were reading in the newspaper how she, ki- how she brutally killed these two women and dismembered them. I know, he just keeps barking. And, like, I mean, the cuts were clean. They were surgical precision cuts. Not something. She did work in a hospital. Medical right. clinic. What? A, it, it counts. Yes, but you're not going to have surgical level... Cutting up skills as a secretary. But why would he? Was he a doctor? He was. Oh. Yeah, he was, actually. Oh. You didn't say that. Did you? No, I didn't say that. Oh. Well, yeah, he did it. it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't didn't say that, but it... Trust me, I didn't know until the very last source I read when you got here. Yeah. (laughs) That he was a doctor, and that's when I was like, oh my god, there's so much. Yeah, that makes sense now. Yeah. Okay. I know. I don't like that episode. <laughs> this episode. I don't like it for that reason. For my story. I don't like my story. That was a good story, though. I know. It was a good story. And I do, I mean, I do feel bad for her. But I also feel bad for the two girls. But also, how catty of you to, like... Well, I mean, that's all her story, though. I know. I know, but there, I mean, there there were rumors. I mean, he was a playboy, he was a philanderer. There was a rumor that, mm, there was some shady stuff going on. Hopefully next time I get a good story like this, I have more time to everything. Okay. 
Are y'all ready? I am now. You're supposed to say aye aye, Captain. Oh. Aye, Are aye, you Captain. ready? <laughs> Are you ready? Aye aye, Captain. Okay. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? So. <laughs> <laughs> you said your sources for that, right? I think so. I mean, it's, yeah, I read top to bottom, yep. so I had to. I do too, but I skip it. When have I ever skipped my sources except for the first episode? episode. (laughs) (laughs) Ugh. Okay, for this story, my sources are azcentral.com, facebook.com, and Wikipedia. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Okay, so in December 2017, a family in Phoenix, Arizona started experiencing... Some unexplained events. Events. (laughs) Advents. Unexplained events. It's it's Christmas. There's an advent calendar. Yeah. Every day you just get a new New supernatural thing. Yeah. So the family living in the house consisted of Rudy Calderon, who's the main source of all this information. Yeah. Um, His grandfather, his aunt, and his two teenage cousins. The activities started on December 21st and the family, uh, when the family started hearing odd noises in the home. I'm not really sure what those are. They weren't really specific about those. That's okay. Weird noises. And then one day, Rudy noticed that a plush uh, Santa Claus had been moved from a corner of the living room to his laundry bin in his bedroom when the whole family was out shopping. Later that day... He noticed a box filled with coins he had collected from his travels around the world had been moved from his luggage to the kitchen counter. Okay. The main theory that they had at this point was that somebody was messing with them. Mm -hmm. They thought that it was one of the The family family members members. that was just playing a prank on them. Yeah. But none of them were confessing. No one was fessing up. Yeah. I think I literally wrote that at one point. I was like, no. <laughs> no, I'm not being that lame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they came home one day and all of the kitchen cabinets and drawers were open. Oh, poltergeist. Yes. All of the doors and windows were locked so no one could have gotten in. At this point, his two uncles came over to pray and assured them that it was all in their heads. Lovely. And this is the part that actually really makes me interested in this story. It's part partly the reason why I chose it. Okay. I was like, all right, someone is in your house is just, like, pranking you. Yeah. And no one wants to fess up. But about 30 minutes after one of, the, uh, one of his cousins left the bathroom, Rudy went in there and found writing on the bathroom wall in a language that none of them could recognize. Mm-hmm. What um, language was it? I'll get to it. Ugh. And it looked like it was written in some sort of ash it kind of looked like thick eyeliner, kind of. Um, but it said it was ash, so I don't know. Eyeshadow? The picture of it looked like it. I don't know. Oh. That is when the family began to accuse each other of taking the prank too far. Oh. But the cousin said in an interview that she doesn't even... Oh. That she didn't know what language that was. Well, okay. I almost gave away what it was. At this point, his aunt was so stressed out that she fainted. And she started shaking and couldn't breathe. Which, honestly, 
sounds like a panic attack. Yeah. Yeah. Which I would get. I'd feel freaked out in that situation. So, I don't know. Um, I'd be like, sorry, sir, you owe rent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After all of this, they decided to put up a camera in the house and record overnight to see if anyone was coming into their house. So, when they woke up on Christmas, on the, when they woke up on the morning of Christmas Eve, they found that three separate rooms, sinks, showers, and bathtubs had all overflowed with water and caused the rooms to flood. Lovely. And the yes. night before Christmas, too. <laughs> this is mostly why I think it probably wasn't a prank, because that's, like, serious shit to do for a prank. Yeah. Like, that can lead to water damage. That's not cool. Very easily. Um, so, Rudy said that they were genuinely confessed to each other that none of them had done it. So, at that point, he was convinced that it was something else. Because uh, there was no time in the day mm-hmm. where the family was apart, so it couldn't have been any of them. Well, yeah, Christmas Eve, you spend, like... Right. Or, um, yeah. Well, day before Christmas Eve. But they all lived together. His aunt called the landlord's husband, who was a plumber, and he came in and did some maintenance, but he found that there was nothing wrong. All of this was captured on video and it was posted on Facebook by Rudy asking for help help translating the letters written on the wall and for any advice anyone might be able to give. He said, as a family of faith, I know God will protect us, but we're terrified. I went to the Facebook post. Yeah. Watched the video. And his aunt and his family literally looked freaked out. Like, freaked out. Really? Yeah. And his grandfather, uh, there was part of the video where his grandfather was, like, talking in Spanish and he was, like, just seemed very emphatic Mm -hmm. about, I guess, how freaked out they were. I don't speak Spanish, so I don't know. But I assume. Yeah. Because that's what the video was about. One night, as he and his aunt began praying, they heard someone banging on the front door, and he ran to open it, but when he did, no one was there. <sighs> yes. Um, they were really terrified that someone was, gonna, was like, coming into their house. Mm-hmm. If it's someone coming in, then that's scarier because they can hurt us, said Stephanie Garcia, which is one of the teenage cousins. Um, and she said she didn't know what to think. In one of the comments on that Facebook page, Rudy said that they hired someone to take a look at the house and check out any crawl spaces, the attic, like anywhere that someone could hide to yeah. make sure that there was nobody like secretly in their house and just, you know, fucking with them. Not impossible. Right, right. He said, I don't think this is natural. I think there's a supernatural entity involved, but I can't say one way or the other. He also said that they didn't call the police because they didn't think they had enough evidence that someone had entered their home. Mm-hmm. And every time anything happened, the doors had been locked. He was like, what would we tell the police? Things were moving around. They thought that they'd be laughed at, which is probably accurate. Mm-hmm. So, the Facebook post has been shared 590 times, and there are 691 comments, um, as re- summer as recent as 23 weeks ago. Oh, really? Um, which was back in June. Okay, so now, like, yeah, a year ago. Yeah. 
So you'd expect for most of the comments to say things like, this is fake or get a life or like it's a hoax or whatever. But most of the comments are people who seem to be like legit interested or sympathetic to what the family was going through. Mm -hmm. People all over the country said that they were praying for the family. A lot of the comments were people giving advice on how to get a spirit out of your home. Some people telling him to get a priest or a shaman or smudge his home. Sage it up. Yeah. Not many of what I could see were people calling it a hoax. He was surprised because he expected more ridicule, but people were genuinely nice and wanted to help. He said, this past week has been miserable for us. We're tired and low on energy. We're stumped as to why all of this is happening now. The reason I went to social media is because I've never experienced anything like this before. So, along with the other comments, people were translating what was written on the wall. Hmm. Rudy has traveled extensively. He started a company that organizes affordable 10-day trips abroad for college students who are minorities who mm-hmm. want to travel but can't afford a whole semester abroad. And he said that even with him having traveled so many places, he didn't recognize the language. Yeah. People seemed to figure out what the language was pretty quickly and that the word meant danger or threat. Latin. No. Oh. One comment by Catherine Stanley says, that's Yiddish. Yes. The language that originated originated from the Ashkenazi Jews She goes on to say, ghosts are technically just souls that aren't trapped in bodies anymore. Maybe it's a soul trying to tell you that you're in danger. Maybe try to find out who the previous owner of the house was. Well, yeah, but also, why Yiddish? Right. So, the family can't really explain that. Um, They said that no one in the family is Jewish and none of them can read or write Yiddish. Another person, Frank Ibarra, commented saying, if you have someone pray over your house, the person that prays has to be someone powerful enough spiritually or or else you'll just make it angry. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yiddish. Of all languages, the Yiddish. Yeah. Some people... <laughs> I'll get to it. It's funny. Is, is, is it a dibbic? I mean... <clears throat> so, an article that I read had some interviews from some professors on the subject. Christopher Bader, a sociology professor at at Chapman University in Orange, California, who researches ghost hunters, said that Rudy and his family's experiences aren't unique. He said that based on on his research, experiences like this, except for the Yiddish, Mm -hmm. um, are common and can happen to anyone. Well, yeah. Another professor, right. Another professor, Diane Goldstein, who is a folklore professor at Indiana University, said that she'd never heard of a Yiddish, uh, of, of any Yiddish writing in any of the ghost stories she's researched. However, she agreed that these types of stories are common among people regardless of, like, socioeconomic background. Or... Yeah. Heck, even the writing on walls is kind of common. Yeah. It's just the Yiddish that, <laughs> that Yiddish? seems to be not common. <laughs> Bader, however, has heard ghost stories involving Yiddish writing, but that it's very rare. Mm -hmm. He also co-authored a book called Paranormal America. That sounds familiar, though. I have no idea. But um, he says that TV shows in recent years have helped to legitimize stories of paranormal activity. Mm -hmm. 
He says you can read it one of two ways. Some of his friends say that it's a negative aspect of our culture that we're becoming more gullible, but that other people believe that people are less afraid to speak out about these experiences. Mm -hmm. The Indiana professor Goldstein warns people against criticizing people who share their ghost stories. She said that she can't say if they're true or not, but people who experience unexplained events wholeheartedly believe they happened. <laughs> Bader also says that a common theory among ghost hunters is that um, teenage energy can manifest into, manifest into telekinetic powers. Poltergeist. AKA, I was going to say tulpa. Also poltergeist. <laughs> uh, he added if that Rudy travels a lot and brings back souvenirs, some believe that a spirit may be attached to the item. And he had just come back from Tanzania with souvenirs, but he did have souvenirs from a bunch of other places that he had been to. Okay. One, the thing that interested me was the coins that were moved from his luggage to the kitchen. Counter, yeah. Yeah. One person commented on the Facebook post saying, Not to make you feel bad, but you travel the world. You're bound to bring back a few spirits. I'm an atheist, so I wouldn't be much help. But keep us updated. Like, good job. You didn't help at all. Um, like, you're bound to bring back spirits. By the way, I don't believe in the thing that's probably going to help you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. Some people had theories about what were in that house. They ranged from tulpas to a crazy person in your attic to um <laughs> to just a uh you know jewish grandma who's trying to cook some food in the kitchen got angry because she didn't know where anything was yeah rearranged um, my kitchen yeah but i hate it some people did have some interesting ideas one person asked if it was three separate rooms that had flooded and he answered yes and asked why the guy explained that he had heard stories about spirits coming through water, oh. and mostly in threes. Yeah. So, like, one good spirit, one bad, and then one neutral, and suggested that he look into water spirits. Mm. Yes. Which can Another be theory. attributed to a demon. Uh, yes. Another theory was Dibbick. Damn. Yes, Dibbick. I, <laughs> I knew as soon as he said it, I was like, damn it. I was, ho I, it was like, I knew as I said Yiddish, she'd be like, oh, wait, me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you knew I would connect the Yeah. <laughs> For those who don't know, uh, Dibbick is a malicious or evil spirit believed to be d the dislocated soul of a dead person. I think they suggested that, obviously, because of the Yiddish writing on the wall, but Dibbicks are usually known for possession from yeah. all the research that I did, Yeah. but um, other people just say it's a demon that likes to fuck with shit, so... It's a Jewish um, demon. And I didn't see any other posts on his page about the issue, so which... So maybe it stopped? Was, I, I, I looked through the all of the comments. There, there's 600 and something. I looked through all of them. And I found the most recent comments, somebody asked for an update and what happened, and the answer is pretty straightforward. They moved out immediately. <laughs> I mean, that's one way to handle yeah, it. Yeah, they didn't feel safe. They're um, lucky it didn't follow them. Yeah, right. He travels so much. Good for him. Yeah, there's so many beautiful places. I was yeah. like, fuck you, dude. No one. <laughs> um, can I? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there was still some activity happening after Christmas Eve, so they got out, like, super quick. Right, yeah. Um, they were contacted by several mediums and priests who asked to come and observe, 
but they didn't want to wait any longer so they just peaced out and um that's my story <laughs> well now i'm very curious is there anyone who lives there now after that i don't know i was gonna or... look it up but i didn't right, have time yeah, right yeah. yeah just like me with my story yeah we're procrastinators, people. No, this week has just been rough on me. Just... I'm a procrastinator, people. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Myths and Misfortunes. Twitter is Myths and Misfortunes. Yes. You can also send us an email at, uh, what is it, Rachel? Myths and Misfortunes at gmail.com. Yes, our music was composed by McKean Fulbright and our art was created by Heather Maria Atkins. You can find their websites in the description below. I'm eating chocolate, so my voice might sound weird. Hold on. <laughs> Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and all that shiz. And thanks so much for listening, guys. Yes, yes, thanks. Bye. (laughs) Bye.